0: I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 12. If you don't have a copy of the scripture with you, you can use that one in the pew back in front of you or follow along on the screen, and the words will be displayed shortly. Lately, my kids have been asking me to catch them in a trust fall. I don't even know how they learned about trust falls. They didn't learn it from me. But they jump up onto a chair and then they leap up onto a table and turn around and without even checking to see if I'm ready they just sort of flop their way off the back of the table. I haven't dropped one yet. I've been close but half the time I'm not ready and I'm able to nab them with just one arm but they've now taken it to another level. And I have to be very careful anytime I walk by our staircase, but before I know it, I hear, hey, Dad, trust fall! And then before you can even turn around, there's a kid, five, six, nine stairs up, just propelling themselves through the air like a flying squirrel in the redwood forest. For some reason, they have complete and utter trust. I love that about kids and there's a part of me that wishes that we could have that same kind of trust as adults (laughs) but we don't trust doesn't come so easily with each other and if we're honest trust doesn't come so easily with God does it? Especially when life is hard, when we are dealing with pain, or suffering, or ridicule, or chronic illness. We hear verses like Romans 8.28, that verse that so many of you have memorized. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, for those who have been called according to his purpose, We cling to that promise, but we can't see how ridicule and pain or illness fit into it. (laughs) And sooner or later, when we don't understand, when we are forced to navigate one of the most difficult things in life, where what we see and feel doesn't line up with what we know, then trust comes into question I think of it kind of like the miracle of the shipyards almost every part of our great ocean-going vessels are made of steel and if you take a single steel plate and you toss it into the water it sinks steel does not float but when the shipbuilders are finished and when every last plate has been riveted into its place, then this massive steel ship not only floats, but it's seemingly unsinkable. <laughs> Taken by itself, personal suffering feels to us to be senseless. We throw it into the sea of Romans eight twenty eight, and it sinks. But still, I believe... That when the eternal shipbuilder has finally finished, when God has worked out his perfect design, even these seemingly senseless difficulties will somehow work together for our eternal good. Do you trust God that much? This morning, we reached the pinnacle of the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 12. It's where the struggle of weakness and power come together. And Paul indicates that the type of trust, the type of perspective that he has, helps in the coming together of weakness and power. And he does so to a point where he even says that at the end of our passage, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. I'm content with those things in my life. Now, how in the world could a person be content with a life like that? Well, let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and find out. This is what Paul says. He says, I must go on boasting Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me remind you of the context. The Apostle Paul is in this Season of engaging those who are boasting in the church. There are some who are claiming a unique nearness to God based on the fact that they have some external things in their life that look really, really good. And Paul is engaging them on the field of boasting even though he doesn't desire to do so, but he's doing so to prove a point. He has given them in chapters 10 and 11 the reasons why he could be boasting, In external things, he could boast in his superior identity. He could boast in his superior effectiveness in ministry, but instead, he chooses to boast in weakness. Nobody boasts about that, but Paul chooses to boast in the thing that nobody boasts about how weak of a man he is. And here in chapter 12, he picks up this idea of boasting. He says, so I must go on boasting. And he does so by telling about the most profound type of spiritual experience a person could have. And he begins to tell about it in the third person. (laughs) I know a man, he says. we know that he's actually talking about himself. And we know that because just a little farther down the page, verse seven, he switches back to the first person again and refers to the revelations that had been given to me. (laughs) Paul has a reason to boast. Fourteen years earlier, he tells uh, Paul would have been in Antioch or maybe Tarsus. This would have been before his first missionary journey. And he had a personal spiritual experience with the Lord in which he was caught up to what he calls the third heaven. He doesn't know how to describe it. Was it a vision? Did God take him there physically? He doesn't know. He can't say. But it sounds like one of those experiences that You've had and that I've had in different sorts of ways. One of those experiences in which you remember every detail that happened during those particular moments. He says that he saw things and heard things that cannot be told by men. Now, when you pause. If you're inquisitive at all, this begs a question, which then births all kinds of other questions. (laughs) Right? What is the third heaven? And if there is a third heaven, if there are levels of heaven, does this mean that there are levels of pleasure in heaven? And if so, do people in the lesser levels experience less of God in heaven? And if so, are they somehow less fulfilled in their time than heaven than those who are in higher levels? Maybe they're less happy for all of eternity. How can a person get to the higher levels of heaven? The Bible doesn't seem to indicate the requirements to move from one to the other, so how can I know if I could Possibly get there? And the questions go on. But before you go down the rabbit hole of speculation, consider with me that in the ancient world, the word heaven and the idea of heaven was often thought about in three spatial dynamics. That heaven, was one level that could be described as the clouds or the atmosphere. <laughs> and the next level might be disguised spatially as a little bit more distant, the stars. And a third heaven, perhaps, being the dwelling place of God Himself. And with that understanding, it doesn't become so out of bounds to think about what Paul is saying here. If you think about the first level, and maybe the second level of heaven, you see an expression of this poetically in Psalm 19, verse 6. It says that the sun's rising is from the ends of the heavens and the circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The psalmist is obviously talking about the sun rising at the end of the sky and how that is expressed as the heavens. And in verse 3, Paul describes that this taking to the third heaven, being caught up, is being caught up into paradise. And it's interesting that there are only two other occurrences in the entire New Testament of this word paradise, and both of them talk about an occasion in which someone is in the presence of God himself. You might remember Luke chapter 23, Jesus is on the cross and next to him is a thief on another cross. And upon the thief's confession, Jesus replies to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Revelation chapter two, the apostle John is giving a vision of the end times to the churches and to us. And he says in chapter two, verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers i will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of god and so paul had this personal spiritual experience which is unmatched through vision or in body he was taken up into the presence of god and that's all we know about it <laughs> he doesn't talk about it anywhere else in scripture The Bible doesn't seem to indicate that this is a common occurrence for Christians. The rest is left to be a mystery. And so why does he include its description here? I think it points to two things. First, it is striking, isn't it, that out of all the experiences that Paul does share with other people, this experience of the third heaven is never mentioned among the churches at large. And I think that tells us where he places it in its order of importance, this personal spiritual experience of his. God didn't do this so that he could write the book, 25 Minutes in the Third heaven. Nor did he do it so Paul could use his personal spiritual experience as a compelling reason why others should put their faith in Christ as well. Paul doesn't really talk about it. And it means that he understands that this personal spiritual experience is just that. It's personal. It was primarily just for him. (laughs) And you know, God does that sometimes. God does things in your personal spiritual life sometimes that are meant just for you. (laughs) Of course the vast majority of them are meant for you and for the people around you but sometimes just sometimes God helps you to understand what's coming ahead or to encourage you in difficulty or to empower you for a task at hand. Paul's personal spiritual experience helped him through whippings and beatings and stonings and shipwreck he had a vision of god that aided in his prog- in his progress but personal spiritual experience was never meant to be the foundation of the christian life nor was it meant to be the foundation of the church's life and that's really important to just pause and consider for a moment because there will be there has been there are and there will be people who will continue to tell you that the foundation of your Christian life is your personal spiritual interaction with God as if the way that you live throughout the course of this life is to chase the next unique spiritual experience and to chase it again, and to chase it again, and to chase it again, as if you can manufacture them. But that is not how the Christian life foundation works, nor it is the foundation for local churches. It's important because it shows that the authority and the foundation for the Christian and for the church is not based on individual personal experiences, but it's based on actions and the words of its leaders, of the apostles themselves. Secondly, why did Paul bring this up? Well, I think he brings it up because he desires to say once again, you claim spiritual experiences. I have one even greater and I could boast in it but I'm not going to because your unique personal spiritual experiences don't necessarily indicate the status with God that you think that they might. Paul must have been really, really holy, a really unique guy from his birth to experience that kind of personal spiritual experience you might think. But Paul says, I could boast about this in the same way you're boasting about all the things in your life, but I'm not gonna do that because this boasting does not prove anything of great consequence as it relates to our status. So instead, Paul points back to another type of boast. He goes back again to his weakness. Look at verses six through eight with me. He says, so if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Pause. That would be a great, that'd be a great model for your life, by the way, that no one would think more of you, that you wouldn't be striving for people to think more of you than what they see in you and hear from you. Let's keep going. So to keep me from becoming conceited, Paul writes, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul had this ongoing struggle in his life, this weakness, this form of suffering that he calls a thorn in the flesh. He doesn't tell us what it was. Many people think that it was probably a physical illness. Some have thought that perhaps it was a ongoing temptation to a particular sin. Then the funny part of that interpretation is sort of if you come to that conclusion, you most often think that Paul's thorn in the flesh is the exact same temptation that you have in your flesh. If you ask a dorm room of college boys what the thorn in the flesh is, they're gonna all tell you the exact same thing. Obviously, pastor, that's lust. (laughs) Well, that's because that's what young men acutely struggle with. But it's possibly or probably illness Maybe it's persecution, it's possibly depression. We don't really know and the reason why he doesn't tell us is because I think there's a universal application of this here and you use this sometimes in your language. Well, this difficulty in my life is my, is my thorn in the flesh. But it's clear here that this thorn, this difficulty, this weakness, this suffering is delivered by a messenger of Satan And it's allowed by God. And the results are that Paul is pleading to God for relief. Remember that prayer is an expression of dependence on God to do what we cannot do that we confess our weakness and his power and we ask him to do something. And Paul says that three times he pleaded with God to take the thorn away and God did not do so. God saw fit to allow this chief of servants to continue to suffer. (laughs) Even in the midst of doing incredible things. That's a really far cry from a picture of God that just wants you to be happy and healthy all of your days. (laughs) And so why was it there, this thorn, and why was it not removed? Well, Paul actually tells us twice. Look at the words on the page, verse seven. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited, And then he goes on to describe the thorn and then he says again, at the end of verse seven, to keep me from becoming conceited. (laughs) To keep me from becoming conceited. If anyone would have the right to boast or to become conceited, it would be this guy. We've seen it in chapters 10, 11, and 12. He had ethnic and religious and covenantal identity. He had more success in his work than any other person alive other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he was taken all the way to the third heaven. And yet, God chose to keep him dependent, and he did so through this thorn, this type of suffering, so that he would not become conceited. Now, that would seem to indicate that arrogance, pride, or self-sufficiency were worse dangers to Paul than the physical suffering that God allowed him to endure. That's important to consider for a minute. We live in a culture right now that says that our chief aim, culturally speaking, is physical comfort and happiness. And the biggest danger in our life is a lack of physical comfort or a lack of self-fulfillment. So we... Struggle to see how this could possibly be the case and yet it would seem that moral character formation was more important to God than comfort or happiness for his chief servant. Friends, I know that there are some among us who struggle with a thorn. Some of us more than others, chronic illness, pain, ongoing bouts with depression, persistent temptation, and God has allowed that to happen. And you've pleaded with him asking for him to take it away, but he's chosen not to do so. And you are left asking why. And we don't know all the reasons why, but at the very least, we can say that it has something to do with our dependence on him and the ongoing formation that he is doing in our lives. God does not waste suffering. As Winston Churchill once said, kites rise against the wind, not with it. Peter Marshall, the former chaplain of the U.S. Senate, once wrote that it is a fact that Christian experience, that in Christian experience, that the life is a series of troughs and peaks. In his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, God relies on troughs more than peaks. (laughs) And some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. So why does God God allow Paul to have a thorn? How does it relate to his boast in the Lord? How can he possibly be content with this kind of difficulty in his life? How can you be content with a similar type of difficulty? Well, verse nine and 10 tells us. He says this, look at it with me. He says, in response, the Lord replied to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How can you be content when you're weak? Because God gives perfect power in the midst of your weakness. That is the theme that is displayed throughout the whole book of 2 Corinthians. It's a thread that is just woven from start all the way to finish. That your life will in many ways be marked by a variety of forms of weakness, but fear not because God Will supply grace, enough grace, sufficient grace for you and perfect power to you. Let's just trace this theme really quickly. All the way back in chapter 1, we see in verses 8 and 9 that we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we have experienced. That's weakness. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's how weak we were. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2.14, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him anywhere. That procession is the procession to the cross of suffering and weakness. He goes ahead in chapter 4 and says, We have this treasure in jars of clay, fragile, weak jars, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. and you in chapter 6, he says it again. The servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity and knowledge and patience and kindness, the Holy Spirit and genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through the honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as imposters and yet are true as un- Unknown and yet well known, as dying, and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. God gives perfect power in the midst of our weakness. And he does so because he says the grace that he gives, his favor in your life is sufficient for you regardless of the circumstances that you are in. And so, how do you access the power of God and this sufficient grace in your life? You do it through ongoing trust and faith. Is it hard Yes. Can it be painful? Yes. Will it mean that I might not get my way physically or emotionally? Possibly yes. But can you trust that God will provide for you what you need and everything that you need, even in the midst of your worst difficulties? Absolutely yes. When we are weak, God displays that he is strong. And as God works uniquely through the difficulties in our life, he does so to display his great power. And that's actually for your benefit because he works in these difficulties in your life in a way that he does not otherwise work when you feel, experience personal strength or self sufficiency. And so Paul boasts about this. (laughs) He talks about this boasting a number of times. He says in chapter 10, let the the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Don't boast in yourself, boast in the Lord. If I must boast, chapter 11, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. Why? Why? Chapter 12, verse nine. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Power in weakness points to the very center of God's redemptive plan in the world. You would expect that the sovereign king of the universe, the one who created all, The one who can do anything that he wants to do, whenever he wants to do, that's what it means to be sovereign, is influenced by no one outside of his personal will and desire. You would think that the one who knows all and sees all, the one who stands outside of time, which we cannot even get our mind around. That that one would enter into this space and overwhelm his creation with his power and conquer them to bring them back to himself. But that's not what he does. Jesus experiences the weakness of crucifixion before the display of great power of the resurrection. And the resurrection is what secures our future. (laughs) And so in so many ways, this kind of suffering to glory dynamic that is modeled in the life of Jesus will be the path of all of those who follow him. One author said it this way, and some of you might feel this way today, that a Christian's life or a saint's life is in the hands of God as a bow and arrow are in the hands of an archer. God is aiming at something that the saint cannot see. He stretches and he strains, and every now and again the saint says, I can't stand it anymore. But God does not heed. He goes on stretching until his purpose is in sight, and then he lets fly. And notice the conclusion in verse 10. He says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content. For the sake of Christ, I am content. This would seem to indicate that the emotion or the disposition of contentment is not something that is pressed upon you. (laughs) It is something that you choose. And you can choose even in the most difficulty, difficult of circumstances. How is that the case? Well, it's the case because as Kent Hughes writes, the spiritual math is never what you might think it is. My weakness plus his power equals my strength. <laughs> Instead, it's always my weakness plus his power equals his strength in me (laughs) and if it is his power that you rely on and he gives it to you as he wills and he gives grace that is sufficient everything you need even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances of life then you recognize God does this to accomplish his purposes and no matter how hard it is you can choose to be content with what God has for you. Knowing that you're experiencing a unique type of resurrection power that you would not otherwise experience if you did not suffer. In the late 1800s there was a Scottish theologian named John Macduff who describes the joy that you can have in a life even of difficulty. He does so in poetic terms. This is what he writes. He says, the night dews of affliction and disappointment may fall thickly upon it. The storms of sorrow may beat heavily against it. The winds of adversity may howl fearfully around it. But like those fabled lamps of which we read, that century after century illumined the sepulchers of the east, burning with calm and steady light amid the desolation of all earthly things, unchanged and unextinguishable, so does this joy, this living spark struck off from the great source of light and life outlive all deaths, all changes until it accompanies the freed spirit of the believer in whom it dwells back to those abodes of joy from whence it came. God gives you, Christian, perfect power in the midst of your greatest weaknesses. And you need to know that because pain is so hard. (laughs) And some of us might be wondering why God is allowing us to experience the pain the way that we are. It's one of the hardest things in life, I think. When you feel something and see something, but it does not line up with what you know to be true. (laughs) What do you do? Why does God do that? Paul gives us an answer. He does so to display his power in you. Your suffering will never outstrip God's supply of grace. You need to know that when you're in the throes. Suffering carves away all of the secondary sources of happiness that you might have in your life, physical comfort, financial stability, even incredible spiritual experiences like being caught up to the third heaven, all of the secondary things that you might try to find happiness in, suffering carves them away and it leaves you in a place where you depend and rely completely on God and recognize that he is the one who meets the deepest longings of your heart. I want to close this morning by giving you yet another example of this. And this is an example, uh, we could give hundreds of examples of Christians through the years suffering in the midst of experiencing God's great power. For those of you that suffer with physical or chronic pain and those of you who suffer with ongoing bouts of depression, know that this example serves acutely for you in such a way for your encouragement because you have not and are not alone. Charles Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers in the history of the United Kingdom. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands put their faith in the Lord Jesus through his years of ministry and yet in such a powerful ministry that is marked in history, his life coexisted, his ministry and life coexisted with a life of emotional and ongoing physical suffering. Spurgeon suffered from severe and reoccurring bouts of depression throughout his entire adult life. He was immensely popular among some people in London, and he was immensely unpopular among some other people in London. And that was the case because he took a firm stand on the word of God and to to fight against theological liberalism. But he was often the, the target for public ridicule and scorn. And beyond that, he cared for his wife, Susanna, who was an invalid for most of their marriage. Charles Spurgeon spent one third of his 27 years in ministry out of the pulpit, because of illness. A third. He knew, nev- he knew nearly every insult and hardship and difficulty in his own life. And yet, in his lectures to his students, he writes this. He said, if it be inquired why the valley of the shadow of death must be so often traversed by the servants of King Jesus... The answer is not far to find. All of this is promotive of the Lord's mode of working, which is summed up in these words, not by might nor by power, but by my my spirit, says the Lord. Instruments shall be used, but their intrinsic weakness shall be clearly manifested. There shall be no division of the glory, no diminishing of the honor due the great worker. The man shall be emptied of himself and filled then with the Holy Ghost. My witness is that those who are honored of their Lord in public have usually to endure secret chastening or carry a peculiar cross lest by any means they exalt themselves and fall into the snare of the devil. Such humbling but salutary messages our depressions whisper in our ears. They tell us in a manner, not to be mistaken, that we are but men, frail, feeble, and apt to faint. That's who we are. (laughs) But God, is the all-powerful loving father who will accomplish his purpose and display his glory in you and through you. And so you can trust him. You can trust him in the midst of your suffering. You can trust him in the midst of the thorn. You can trust that his grace is gives you absolutely everything that you need. He does not stop short. It is fully sufficient for you no matter what you feel or see or experience or think. You can trust him like a child trusts his father as he climbs up onto a great height and blindly plunges himself off backwards into the air only to be caught before he sustains injury. God gives perfect power in the midst of our weakness. And so you can be content and even have joy in the midst of it. So let's grow in contentment and joy and trust together. Please pray with me. Father, it is counterintuitive to us to think about power through weakness. It is counterintuitive to our desires to pursue these things. It is counterintuitive to our flesh to recognize that such is the way that we should walk. And so we pray that you would help us, God, that we would trust that your grace is sufficient that we would trust in your power that we would continue in faithful obedience to you no matter how hard the days become and that you would indeed work in and through us this incredible glory that is being displayed for all the world to see and that you would shave away in us our secondary sources of happiness revealing that you are of great greatest consequence that you are of greatest power and that you indeed give us the greatest joy. We pray these things together, amen.